The words of a 17-year-old would change the direction of this murder case that is rocking the small community of West Memphis, Arkansas. Jesse, Jason, and Damien would all be blindsided by the words that would fall from Jesse's mouth after nearly six hours of questioning, redirecting, talking, and aligning his story to the evidence that had been collected. Gitchell stated early in the investigation that the satanic and occult-type activity was at the forefront of his investigation. Little did he know, a juvenile probation officer had the right boy to serve up to West Memphis. A troubled teen who didn't fit the norm in his behavior and religion was going to be turned into an example for those following the rising trend of the Wiccan and satanic religions. The people of the United States of America were not going to stand for children being kidnapped, tortured, mutilated, and murdered so they could sacrifice them to their gods. Damien's home life led him down the road of having mental handicaps. Depression, the number one mental health problem in our society today, made Damien in 1993 the prime suspect. A witch hunt long after the trials of Salem was underway in the South, and three teens, one whose levels of function was that of a fourth grader, a boy who loved heavy metal and representing his bands proudly on each and every one of his concert tees that he wore, and a teen who was desperately searching for a place to belong, would become the face of one of the biggest true crime cases to come from the 19th century. West Memphis PD could not let this case grow cold and go unsolved. They had three sets of grieving parents demanding answers, a community demanding they catch the person or persons responsible for taking the lives of three little eight-year-old boys, and a juvenile probation officer looking to unload a teen that he was sure was only a matter of time away from hurting someone. All of these things provided the department with the gusto to pursue a lead and fitting it to their case. The perfect storm was brewing over the heads in West Memphis. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. The lives of Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore were taken brutally and the town of West Memphis was flipped upside down. Law enforcement seemed to do little to find out who murdered these three eight-year-old boys. Each direction seemed to end in a daunting fizzle. Chief of Police Gary Gitchell held false confidence, stating time and time again he was confident that they would solve this case. But we know by the little that was done within the days of the murders that this statement was lacking. Tonight, we continue on and follow the investigation that turns into trimming the pieces of the puzzle to fit it into the respected places that Gitchell wanted them to go. The, the lives of three others will be disregarded as they don't fit your conventional norm. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder, mutilation, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you.
Good evening, all my true crime nerds. Let's do a little house cleaning before we get started. You are down to about 48 hours before the design of the month merch goes off the website. If you are waiting to snag one, time is ticking as they will leave the store at midnight, March 31st. Swing by the truecrimelibrarian.com to grab your gear before it is gone. We launched our discussion page on Facebook this week. Be sure to head over and join so that you can connect with other listeners and talk about the cases you've been dying to discuss. This will also provide you with more opportunities to interact with yours truly. The link to the group can be found at the True Crime Librarian on Facebook. Last but not least, let's hand out some of that true crime nerd love to Mix46, JW, Video Games Bro, and last but certainly not least, Murdered Squared Podcast. Thank you all for taking a time out to leave a review or recommendation about the show. If you'd like to make it onto the list of the true crime nerd love, all you have to do is leave a review or recommendation or even head over to the website, thetruecrimelibrarian.com and hit that donation button. All of these are a perfect way for you to get a shout out on the show. If you leave a review on social media, make sure to use the hashtag the true crime librarian so that I can find it and give you the love you deserve. Enough of this. Let's get to what you all came here for the true crime. Let me introduce you to Damien Eccles. He will come an integral part of Gitchell's investigation. Damien Eccles was born Michael Wayne Hutchinson, but changed his name to Eccles when his father, Jack, or Andy Eccles, adopted him. And his adopted father was a very strong Catholic and urged Damien to look into converting to Catholicism. And during his time that he was studying the religion, he learned of a saint named Damien. He's the patron saint of leprosy. He had taken in a group of individuals who were sick with, with uh, leprosy and took care of them and guided them. And eventually he ended up dying from leprosy. And for Damien, this is something that gave him hope. And he really attached to this saint. So that is where Damien gets his name. He officially changed his name from Michael to Damien, and it's all because of a Catholic saint. However, in his teenage years, Damien would let go of that Catholicism and dive deep into the Wiccan religion. This is where things start to go downhill for Damien. He was different. He wore black. He didn't have what was considered a normal religion. Most people, when they hear the word Wiccan, they automatically go to witch and spells and crafts and voodoo and things of that nature. Let me give you just a slight bit of education because I dove a little bit into the Wiccan religion and they believe there is a God. However, they believe their God is a female as we are children of God and men cannot have children. They also worship the earth. They worship the things that come from the earth. They don't believe in the devil. They do believe there are evil spirits and evil ways that can occur. But for the most part, it's just believing in the things that you can see. It's really 
they, some people out there probably have taken this religion to the point that they're like, I'm a witch and I'm going to cast a spell. There are people out there that are crazy enough to believe that if they're Wiccan, they have this power to make you do whatever they want. And if you don't, well, then they have a power to to discipline you with. No, that's not how this works for this religion. They don't do things this way. But in 1993, it's new. Not necessarily new, but it is on a trend. As teenagers are trying to find who they are in this time, and this is new, this is different than what they were brought up in, especially in the South. Most people who are from the South, shout out to all of us below the Mason-Dixon line, we were what we call Southern Baptists. Hardcore. You were raised that way. Most people were raised that way. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm married to a man who is Catholic and I was raised Southern Baptist. It's an odd relationship, but I'm very open to religion and, and to what it entails. So therefore, I, I wouldn't claim that just because I was raised with Southern Baptist that I am one. Okay. So, you know, you hear about the revivals and things like that, and that is very prominent in those good old Southern Baptist church. However, down here, when you say you're a different religion other than being a Baptist, it's almost a drawback especially during the 90s. I mean, it, we heard of those who were Catholic and we heard of those who are Jewish, but we never went and sought out where they went to worship, okay? That's just not how it is. Wiccans, they don't go to a specific building necessarily. They they meet in nature. They love to be surrounded by what the world is providing them. And that's different. That's not your normal religion. And and we we hone in on people like this. And for Damien, he needed a place to feel safe. He needed something he could actually see to believe. He was having a very hard time discovering who he was. Now, Damien had a girlfriend at this point. He's like 16 years old. His girlfriend is Deanna Holcomb. However, her mother was hell-bent on keeping the two apart. Deanna's mother would call the police several times on Damien because he, you know, he, he wore black. He had the black trench coat. We, you know, black trench coat in 1993 had not taken up the notoriety and the infamy that it would like in 1999 during the Columbine shootings. And now that, I mean, we see somebody in a trench coat, we automatically are drawn back and and very aware of our surroundings because so many mass shooters have wore the same trench coat. But then it was still different, you know, and especially in the South where it really doesn't get that cold. But Dame, for whatever reason, Deanna's mother just was not comfortable with her daughter dating Damien. And she was using the police as a way to drive a wedge in between the two of them. And at some point, Deanna and Damon think, we're going to run away. So on May 19th, 1992, a year before the murders of Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore, Damien and Deanna Holcomb decide, we're going to run away. We're going to be together. We're going to love each other. And 
you know, you remember being a teenager, you remember going through your first love. And for you at that time, that's all you needed. You know, everything else would fall into place. We were very naive during those times. It was blissfully amazing, you know, to just be like, he loves me and I love her and, you know, things are going to be fine. So they run away. However, neither one of them have a license or a car. So they end up breaking into a run-down abandoned trailer and police eventually figure out where they're at. They show up. They find Damien, Deanna. They're naked from the waist down. So this earns Damien his very first official arrest record. Damon was arrested for the charge of burglary, and this would lead him to a man named Jerry Driver. Jerry Driver was the Crittenden County juvenile officer assigned to Damien's case. Let's take a moment here and, and just clarify. He is not an actual officer of the law. He does not have the same power or levels of power that a police officer do. However, he can pick up the phone, call a police officer, and basically get them to you know, do what he can't do. So now Damien has this new person in his life. And one meeting with Damien, Driver was convinced that he was far more troubled than anyone was willing to believe. And he recommended that maybe we should get you some help. Well, Deanna's mother's on the other ear of Driver saying, you know, Damien's trying to get my daughter into this black magic bullshit. No, that's not what he's doing. I can see that he's he's explaining the religion he, he is highly engrossed in at this time, this Wiccan religion, and tr just trying to clarify the misnomenclatures of what what people think it is, okay? Well, this mother, obviously hardcore in her religion, and no, you're not going to teach my daughter anything else. So, driver... You know, older man set in his ways. You know, funny little side note, he was a commercial airline pilot before he became a juvenile probation officer. Yeah, there's a lot of experience there, right? <clears throat> I didn't say that. During this part of the decade, like I said, we're seeing rise in satanic and ritualistic activities, cults, gothic activity. It's on the rise in America. And Driver took this to heart. I mean, you think I dive deep in their shit. He dives way deeper than I could ever do. And he's going to make an example out of Damien Eccles for the West Memphis and Marion, Arkansas area. He's decided, you know, you look like one of those slasher movie type guys with your boots and your coat, your long stringy black hair. You know, you just don't fit in. So what did he do? He sends Damien off to Little Rock Psychiatric Hospital. And Driver thought Damien was a leader and a central figure in the devoted occult-related activity. Now, thanks to Driver and his extensive research, there's air quotes going with that, by the way, he attended seminars everywhere he could. He, you know, he, he just, he wanted to learn as much as he could about this new trend in America. And trying to get an understanding of, of why it's going this way. And he, I mean, you can't deny you're starting to see a rise in call-related paraphernalia. You can't. It happened 
We've got Jamestown. You know, we have multiple cults that have emerged during this decade. So he's trying to pin all of this onto Damien and label him something he's really not. Well, back at the psychiatric hospital, the psychiatrists, they're not seeing the same thing. They didn't see the reason that Damien was dangerous as they didn't, they didn't see the same thing that Driver was seeing. It's noted very carefully that Damien indicates he is not involved with Satanism, but he is involved in witchcraft, the Wiccan religion. In the end, they end up diagnosing Damien with major depressive. He has the possibility of being bipolar with a manic depressive disorder. He's just on the borderline. So it wasn't enough for them to actually diagnose him as a manic depressive, but they did diagnose him with major depression. And like I said, today, that's the number one leading mental health problem. Had people been more open to mental health and the the help that would be needed for people like Damien in 1993, we could have solved a lot of the things that we see, the trends in the true crime during that decade. Um, we could see a total turnaround. Things, things would be different. Statistics wouldn't look the same. However, 1990s, you don't talk about your mental health. You don't talk about your depression. You don't talk about the voices you're hearing. You keep to yourself and you try to present yourself as normal as possible. Well, Damien is struggling hard with this. And for him, the awkwardness and wearing the black and being the person he is, it's easier to push people away than it was to let people in. And he used every bit of that to create a bubble around him so that he never had to feel the rejection that could come from meeting new people. Now, don't get me wrong. He showed extreme physical aggression towards others. He had suicidal ideations and intent. He was depressed. He was bizarre and had an unusual thinking. This is a teenager on the brink of, I don't know where my life is going, you know? I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable conforming to, to what society except as normal. That's not who I am, and I'm struggling mentally to get there. You're going to see these things come out in these people. Unfortunately, they're angry. They're angry that they can't be normal. They're angry that they can't be accepted. They're angry because their, their fear of rejection is incredibly high. So we're going to see extreme physical aggression. They're not necessarily out to hurt somebody, but they don't want themselves to feel that emotional pain. The suicidal ideation and intent, again, he's not comfortable in his own skin. He's having trouble accepting who he is. And so it's not, like I said, it's not uncommon to see this present in people who are, are finding their way in life. It should be noted that even though he expressed ex aggression towards others, he never, ever acted on these ideations. He never laid hands on anybody. He never caused physical harm to anyone.
After three weeks in the psychiatric hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas, Damien was released and he had a prescription for, oh, I'm going to butcher this drug's name, imipramine, for his depression. And his mother, Pam, she started looking at the possibility of her and Damien and Michelle, Damien's sister, moving away from Arkansas and hopefully away from this trouble that Damien seems to have found himself in. So it's not long after Damien is released from the hospital, Pam moves her children to Oregon, where Damien and Michelle will live with their biological father, hoping that he would improve in this different surroundings. Now, Driver, he remained skeptical of Damien and the help he received at the psychiatric hospital. And seeing as how he was overseeing Damien's probation that he was handed due to that arrest for burglary and sexual misconduct, Driver decided he was going to contact Oregon authorities, giving them a referral with hopes they would take Damien at face value like Driver had. His referral had things like Damien and several associates were involved in a satanic cult. Damien and his girlfriend were placed in a psychiatric hospital. Damien threatened to kill his girlfriend's parents. Damien claims he is a witch. Damien and his girlfriend were planning to have a child so they could sacrifice it to Satan. And authorities in Arkansas believe Damien's parents are involved in the same satanic belief system. Now, I told you that Damien's adoptive father, Jack Eccles, was a very strong Catholic. He would not have gone down this satanic belief system. There's not a bone in my body that believes that. However, if you're trying to sell your point and trying to make others believe your opinion, you're going to say whatever you want to say in order to get it. So Oregon receives this referral and they send a counselor out to visit Damien and his family. And he didn't find any of the items that was listed in driver's referral. Damien wasn't going to school. However, he was working for his father, Joe Hutchinson's gas station. He's making about $5 an hour. That is some low minimum wage right there, people. Damien had no hobbies or interests, claiming he never has fun. Now, this is a huge flag to his major depression. It's really hard to get into things you enjoy when you just see sadness all around. Damien denies any involvement in any satanic cult or believes in Satanism. And quote, he expressed considerable displeasure with Mr. Driver in making assertions. Damien did acknowledge a suicide pact that he and his girlfriend had made and noted that authorities and her parents were attempting to keep them apart. However, he indicates that following hospitalization, he no longer is interested in hurting himself or anyone else. Damien denies ever making threats of killing his girlfriend's parents, and he acknowledges he is a witch and indicates this is his religious preference. He also distinguishes his religious beliefs from Satanism, indicating he believes in a series of gods and goddesses. And he sees this as his religious preference, which should not be concerned to state authorities. Damien felt that my inquiries in this area were an intrusion into his privacy, and he declined to discuss the matter further, end quote. So basically, the whole thing went uneventful. 
Damien was listed as a minimum level threat for the next four months, getting him to his 18th birthday, which is when the probation would be lifted. This is not what Driver wanted. He didn't like what Oregon authorities came back with. And so he immediately sent a letter two days after they contacted him with their findings, saying that Damien was, quote, trying to get in touch with the young lady that was arrested with him. End quote. This is a direct violation of his probation terms. There are zero records to indicate that this ever happened. No phone records ever came back that Damien was attempting to contact Deanna. None. Zero. This led to Damien taking a few steps back with his mental health. This upset him, and I can see why. He he feels like Driver is completely out to get him, and it doesn't matter what he does, there is no stopping it. So his parents end up having to call the authority saying that they were concerned about their son, that either he may hurt himself or maybe them. Damien was taken into custody, and then they took him to a local hospital. Damien wasn't experiencing hallucinations or delusions. He denied he was into Satanism or devil worshiping and denied having making any threats to his mother. But the physician did note he made several verbal threats to his father. So it sounds like Damien didn't get along with his biological father very well. In the end, he was admitted to the hospital for a suicide watch. Damien expressed to the physicians that you know, he missed his ex-girlfriend, Deanna. He missed his best friend, Jason Baldwin. And Damien just wanted to go home, back to where things were comfortable, back to what he knew. He doesn't know very much in Oregon. He's not really familiar with, with Joe. It's not working for Damien. Damien's depression is getting worse the longer he's away. And so, in the end, the physician was on board with Damien going back and staying with his adopted father, Jack, and resuming his life in Arkansas. Everyone was on board with this except for Driver. He was infuriated with Oregon officials signing off on Damien's return to Marion, Arkansas. So what happened? Well, Mr. Driver never documented that physicians in Oregon and the probation authorities in Oregon signed off on Damien returning to Arkansas. That's not noted in Damien's stuff in Arkansas. However, it was noted in his stuff in Oregon. So we have contradicting comments in, in his files. However, Damien got on the bus and he returned home. And Driver again said that Damien was violating his probation by threatening his father and mother back in Oregon, filed a petition, and when Damien stepped off the bus from Oregon, he was adjudicated and taken into custody where they sent him right back to Little Rock's psychiatric hospital. In the end, Driver, he didn't, he didn't want Damien back in his jurisdiction. He thought he was going to do nothing more than cause Driver more trouble. Damien was released after two weeks of being in Little Rock Psychiatric Hospitals where doctors again noted that Damien's behavior appeared normal during his stay. They cautioned Damien, though, that his behavior and how others would perceive that, especially Driver. Even though he was not mentioned directly in the documentation with this statement, 
one can deduce that it was Damien's, it was in Damien's best interest that he don't poke the bear named Jerry Driver. So Damien and Driver sat down after his release and they came together and made some terms that both of them were comfortable with for the remainder of Damien's probation period. Damien had to go see Driver in his office one time a week. Damien had to adhere to a curfew and Damien had to obtain his GED. Damien fulfilled every single one of these things that the two agreed on. Damien obtained his GED 10 days after his 18th birthday, which means he was no longer on probation, yet he still went through with the, with what he and Driver had sat down and, and decided that ne he needed to have done. But it it didn't stand for anything in Driver's book. He still thought Damien was some bad news person. He was dead set on this child being some kind of monster and nobody but him could see it. With the murders of Stevie, Christopher, and Michael, one person in Crittenden County knew Damien and his band of misfits were responsible for this. You want to take any guesses? Well, you know. Yeah, no. Jerry Driver immediately sent over to Gitchell and his team a list of names. And guess who was on that list? Mr. Damien Eccles and his friend, Jason Baldwin. On May 7th, Sudbury, a narcotic officer, and Jones, an assistant to the now chief of juvenile intake and probation, Jerry Driver, went to Damien's and questioned him at his trailer of his stepfather and now home of his mother because his mother and Michelle had come back shortly after Damien had come home. It was an informal interview and nothing was documented. On May 8th, Gitchell and his satanic ritual motive was gaining traction in the department and Driver had the perfect fuel. Shane Griffin, narcotics detective, and he and Driver, they teamed up with Bill Durham, the department's polygraph expert, and they drove out to Marion to question Jason Baldwin. Surprises awaited Durham and Griffin when they knocked on the door of Jason's trailer. He stepped out, followed by Damien and now his new girlfriend, Domini. Their alibi, May 5th, 1993, they were at Jason's uncle's house. Jason was cutting grass and Damien called his dad to pick them up at the laundromat down on Missouri in North Worthington. They were picked up about 6 p.m. and Jack took Jason and Dominie home and then he and Damien went home themselves. In the front yard of Jason's trailer, there are three teens being questioned. None of them have been Mirandized. They were not informed that they could have a lawyer with them and none of their parents were there. Jason Baldwin's only 16. Dominique's not 18. She's, I think she's 16, 17. Uh, Damien was the only one that was of legal age to be questioned without an adult. Yet with his mental problems and, and his just that thought that everybody is out to get him, he really needed somebody there in his corner. However, not the case. Jason was still in school, but even when Damien was in school, the two became really good friends and they bonded over their love for music and heavy metal. Jason Baldwin introduced Damien to Metallica and Damien introduced Jason to U2 and to other bands as well. They were going through the motions in school, although neither one of them were lacking capabilities of doing well. They were both considered outsiders amongst their peers and they were kindred spirits in one another. 
But despite Driver's knowledge of satanic cults, Jason Baldwin wasn't even in the same area as Damien when it came to the Wiccan beliefs. Jason was not Wiccan. Jason was not some satanic cult follower. None of them were. One thing that was for sure is that Damien, Domini, and Jason had no idea who those three little boys were, and they were nowhere close to Robin Hood Hills on May 5th of 1993. Now, at this point, investigators learned that Domini is four months pregnant with Damien's child. Damien found Domini shortly after his return, and the two were inseparable from that moment on. Damien did tell the officer in talking to him that whoever committed these crimes against those boys were sick. They asked Damien, you know, how he thought the boys died, and he said, mutilation, cut up all three, heard they were in the water drowning, cut up one more than the others. Damien was asked about his religious beliefs, and he said that he believed in a female god and evil forces, not the devil. He told investigators that an idea of him being questioned was scary. They asked if Damien would take a polygraph, and Damien said, no reason I would fail. They asked Damien, is there a possibility of his prints being found at the crime scene? And he replied, they won't be. He was very confident that nothing of my person is going to be found where those boys were murdered. I wasn't there. Jason was a little shorter with his answers with his detective. He was uncomfortable with the way this questionings were going, and he was asked some of the same questions, and he said, whoever killed these boys should get the death penalty. And when they asked, you know, how the boys were killed, he's like, I don't know. Would your, would your prince be found there? No. Well, luckily, Jason's mother is coming home just right at the right time during this questioning, and she flies off the handle, accusing them of picking on her son and his friends. And she would not let up until they left. And it's a good thing because there were so many rules broken that afternoon. None of what any of those three teenagers said should have been admissible in court for any reason. Now, you can, you're probably going to sit there and be like, no, Ashley, you're wrong. You know, it was just, you can question somebody. Yes, you're right. However, when you're dealing with minors, it's probably best that you have their guardian approval before you start questioning them. And consider that Domini and Jason were minors. There should have been an adult there with them during this time. No, doesn't matter if it's a formal or informal interrogation. They should not have been questioned without a parent. Plain and simple. Unfortunately, with Damien being 18, he does fall along the lines of being an adult and he did not. There shouldn't have been a parent there. However, you and I know over the history we just talked about, it probably would have been in his best interest to have somebody there on his side. Now, it was noted that Damien's answers were concerning, so they decided to ask him to come down to the police station for some more questioning. On May 10th of 1993, Damien went in for questioning without his parents, without lawyers. At first, he comes off very cold and unemotional, saying the person who did this was sick or the act of was part of like a thrill kill 
The perpetrator was worried about the boy screaming, which is why whoever killed them took them to the forest, yet he or she wanted to hear the screaming. So he, they needed a place where the boys could scream and nobody would hear them. And whoever did this to these children fed off of that fear. And Damien stated, you know, he thinks the killer is funny because he, he hasn't been caught yet. And he didn't care if they ever were caught. He said that the killer was probably someone local and that he won't run. Now, we went over this last week. We, looked over, we went over the crime scene. We looked over what was going on the night of May 5th, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. We had Mr. Bojangles show up and then disappear in thin air. We have John Mark Byers and his son Randy out looking for these children after they made reports of missing children. And John Mark Byers comes back and says he spoke to several officers. He would stop them if he saw them and let them know his son was missing and he needed help. There was no official search set up by officers until the next day. We know this. So at this point, whoever did do this was very comfortable with the way that West Memphis PD was handling this investigation because it became quite obvious at the very beginning they weren't going to look for him. They were dead set on finding somebody who didn't fit your normal person, who was into Satanism, who was a cult leader, who could manipulate people into following them. And Damian Nichols just happened to be the perfect person. The entire questioning was nothing more than to feed the investigation suspicions, and Damian's answers were doing nothing to, to diminish these suspicions. I mean, Damian answered in the only way he knew how. However, when you're looking at the way he's saying things and his body language, it does not look good, okay? I'm not going to lie to you. I know that I'm coming off as a person who doesn't believe that this case was done correctly, and I don't. I mean, there are several people that were a part of this case that I think fingers should have been pointed at them long before these teenagers. However, that's not the case. It's not the way this was investigated. And Damien and his awkwardness are going to be his downfall. Now, Dominie, his girlfriend, her aunt, Narlene Hollingsworth, said that on the night of the murders, she was driving west from the Blue Beacon. And she says she saw her niece with Damien. And she noticed that both of their pants were muddy. And this was between the, the time of 9.30, 10 o'clock. Okay. So, Let's revert back to last week real quick. John Mark Byers was in and out of Robin Hood Hills until about 4.30 a.m. Him and his son were out searching together till midnight. At one point, they were at the Blue Beacon and Randy was driving the car slowly to provide light because John Mark didn't have a flashlight and he's in and out of the tree line hoping to stumble across the boys. Had Dominie and Damien been walking, like her aunt said, 
and covered in mud the way they did, do you not think that one of the many people in the community would have saw them and reported the same thing? Two and two is not equal in four here. Now, Deanna was contacted after this little bit of information came out about Domini and Damien in their muddy pants. And she said that she had lied before when they asked her who she thought was behind the murders. And she said she wasn't sure why she was protecting the person because she knew it was Damien. And they had broken up. There was, there was animosity between the two of them. Things didn't end well. I mean, in the end, it was your typical teenage breakup. So she's mad. And I'm sure she's heard the rumor that Damien has a new girlfriend who is pregnant. And that just made it worse. So I'm going to say that Damien did it. What, what's the harm in that? On May 12th of 1993, Pam Eccles, Damien's mother, was questioned about her son and, her, and his whereabouts on the night of the murders of May 5th of 1993. She told investigators that her son was home with her at the trailer with she, Jack, Michelle, and Damien, and he was on the phone with two girls who lived in Memphis. Around 3 p.m. that afternoon, she says that Jack, Michelle, and herself and Damien had went to visit some friends, but they weren't home, so she talked with the daughter, leaving a message. They left, stopped by the pharmacy on their way home to pick up a prescription for Damien, and after which they all went home and Damien got on the phone. Now, prior in Jason's yard, it was said that Damien was with Jason that afternoon. However, he had his dates missed mixed up and they were actually Damien was actually just with his family now for some people especially those who are on the side that think that these three boys are actually guilty of of the crime they see this as a red flag and I, I you know what even I when I was going through my um research and I saw this I was like hold up wait a second that's that's not the same story However, Pam, Michelle, and Jack are saying, no, this is what we did on that day, and Damien was with us. So, is it possible that Damien got his dates mixed up? Yes. He's on medication, so could that in have inhibited his recall system? Probably. But, you know, don't, don't shoot the messenger here, okay? I'm, I'm simply going to give you all of it. You know, I do. You know, I form opinions very early in these cases, especially with the research that I do. And we're not always going to agree. And that is okay. Okay. So, yes, our stories are contradicting each other, right? However, two days before, Damien had handed over the same story. So, investigators are like, okay, you know, you said you were doing this, then you said you were doing this, your mom says you were doing that, you know, what's going on here? And this satanic theory, it's only intensifying from this point on, even though they didn't really have any evidence proving they were correct or leading them to this, you know, to an arrest in this way, until we get this person, this lady who decides she's going to be, um, a civil investigator. That's what I'm going to call her. Civil investigator. Let me introduce you to Vicki Hutchinson. 
Now, the afternoon after the boys went missing, before their bodies were found, Donald Bray in Marion, Arkansas with the PD, he was dealing with a report from a local truck stop. A $200 overcharge occurred on a customer's credit card and Vicki Hutchinson, the new employee, was on shift that day and it's thought that she made the error to her advantage. So Bray, Officer Bray called Vicki and was like, can you come down? We, we need to talk about this. Well, Vicki arrives at the police station in Marion, where the talk of what was going on in West Memphis with the boys was being highly gossiped. She had brought her son, Aaron Hutchinson, who was eight years old, and he had already spoke to investigators in West Memphis saying he saw Michael Moore talking to a black man in a maroon car. This never went anywhere. We talked to, you know, we didn't talk about this because this this little piece of information to me is is just one of those pieces you throw in and it kind of cl clouds the the whole thing and you have to be able to go in and, and realize that not everything you hear in an investigation not everything that a person remembers is necessarily accurate okay so that's why this black man in a maroon car never went anywhere because supposedly his mother, Michael Moore's mom, had sent this guy to pick him up. I showed you the map. If you if you did the YouTube video, the map is up. I need to get it on my social media. Somebody out there remind me and I'll get it posted for you. But Michael Moore and Christopher Byers lived practically next door to the elementary. So there's no reason why Michael Moore's mother would be like, hey, can you go pick my son up from school? He could walk home. Literally, the bell could still be heard by the time he got to his house. That's how close he got. He lived to the school. So, Bray was a little upset that Vicky was bringing her son with her to this interview, but she explained that Aaron was really close with Christopher and Michael. They were his best friends. And all of a sudden, Bray's trajectory changed. He was no longer interested in this credit card issue with the truck stop. He thought maybe Aaron could offer some information and he could take it to West Memphis police and be one of the guys that helped solve the case, right? He wants to get his name out there. All detectives do. Don't get me wrong. They do. However, some detectives are willing to uh, not necessarily uh, make sure what they are taking, that information they are taking to invest other investigators to help with a crime is completely accurate. Okay. During, he, he decided he's going to call West Memphis and tell him, you know, I've got this little boy here. He's really close friends with two of the boys that were missing. Maybe he can help you get information to where they're located. Well, during this phone call, he learned that the bodies had been found. And so this just gave Bray more drive and, and more desire to insert himself into this investigation in the murders going on in West Memphis. So Bray learned that Christopher and Michael had asked Aaron that afternoon to go to Robin Hood Hills with them. And Vicki she told Aaron he was not allowed to go that day. 
Aaron had actually been with the boys to Robin Hood Hills before. He said that Michael liked to go swimming in the bayou. So Bray takes this information and he decides, I'm going to be this, this celebrity detective because that's the way I'm getting with this dude, okay? He's supposed, there's $200 that was fraudulently charged to somebody's credit card. But he learned this little boy was friends with two boys that are missing. And he's like, screw the $200. What do you know about this murder case? It's not even in your same jurisdiction. You're in Marion, Arkansas. The crimes happened in West Memphis. Different jurisdictions here, Bray. But anyways, Bray eventually talks to the truck stop managers and he said, you know, there's no money missing. Your paper, your paperwork is, has errors in it. You need to go back and, and refigure that. Well, guess what? They didn't believe Bray and they decided, you know what? We're just going to fire her. So Vicky was relieved of her duties at the truck stop shortly after Bray contacting them and saying she didn't steal anything. On May 13th of 1993, Detective Bray calls Vicky in for another interview. She brought Aaron with her as she did before. He's hell-bent that the murders in West Memphis were cult-related and he had some questions for Vicky. And he said, he asked her, did you know anything about an occult or devil worshippers? And she said she didn't, but she was going to see what she could find out. Bray did nothing to deter her from doing this civilian detective work. Guess who her neighbor was? Well, let me introduce you because, you know, you really let me introduce you to her young, scrappy neighbor, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., it's pure coincidence that Miss Kelly's name has also on that list of potential suspects given to Bray by Jerry Driver. Jesse was known as Little Jesse and his father was Big Jesse and a local mechanic in Marion. Little Jesse was short, barely standing over five foot one inches, and according to his friend Jason, quote, he just didn't learn quick and he didn't have much common sense either. He could be funny. But maybe we were all laughing at him more than with him, end quote. Jesse was known for having an extremely low IQ of only 72, suggesting he was borderline mentally challenged. Jesse spent two years in kindergarten, and at the age of seven, he couldn't get past the letter R in his alphabet, and he could only count to 15. Jesse spent an additional two more years in second grade. This is where his behavior problems stem. He would get picked on for being tiny and for the fact that he had been held back again and again. And so these behavior problems were getting severe to the point he needed treatment at a hospital. And this is where Driver would come into Jesse Miss Kelly's life and land him on Driver's list. Jesse would learn at this point at in, you know, in second grade, his IQ was just 67. And therefore, he ended up in classes that were created for special education and helped Jesse progress along with his, his peers. At, Jesse would see a psychologist around the age of eight, and his examiner had this to say about Jesse Miss Kelly. Jesse appeared to be a boy, quote, who is non-psychotic, not retarded, but who feels bad about himself and his world. He sees himself as vulnerable, 
unable to hand the pressures which surround him and in danger of being overwhelmed, end quote. Jesse's home life would also contribute to this behavior and it wouldn't give Jesse the support he would need in order to better himself, whether it be for school or common sense. That just wasn't his home life. Big Jesse, he had a temper and he loved to play rough with his son. And when I say play rough, I mean, he would punch Jesse it send him across the room and land him into the wall. And he's like, oh, get up. You know, we're just horsing around. That, to me, no. But, you know, not my monkey, not my circus. This, according to Big Jesse, was to help toughen up Jesse because he was getting picked on because of his size. But it caused a great deal of aggression towards his father. But Jesse was not stupid. He would not take it out on his father. Instead, he went out for safer objects, people, and even animals. Little Jesse knew he and Big Jesse could never get into a real fight as he was scared of his father's temper. Now, with Jesse taking things out on, on animals, we're seeing, you know, a point in the triad, right? So we're a little concerned, and I'll give it to you. Jesse's IQ would grow slightly with him, but, but his verbal capabilities were failing into what would be considered slightly retarded range. Jesse was 11 by the time he reached the third grade, and his teachers were struggling with him. He was not understanding what he was reading, and the things he did understand, he had a hard time articulating what he had just read. He told a judge who was overseeing his case at this point and all the trouble that Jesse had gotten into that was outside of your normal out-of-control child trouble that he wanted to drop out of school. He was 11 in third grade. And the judge said, no, keep going. So by the time he turned 16, he had finally made it into the ninth grade. His skills were barely that of a fourth grader. An additional IQ test was done on Jesse again, and he was only in the 4% range of those of the same age. So most people performed 96% better than Jesse was. He showed deficits in his general information, abstract and concrete reasoning, numerical reasoning, language development, word knowledge, verbal comprehension, and spatial visualization. Jesse did drop out of school shortly after this evaluation, and he began living life, quote, one day at a time, something Jesse would be noted for saying several times during the Paradise Lost documentaries. Now, side note here, if you have not seen these documentaries, go watch them. If this case is super interesting to you and you're just overly infatuated with it, Please, please, please head over to HBO Max and and watch Paradise Lost. There's three parts. You're going to go through everything these three boys had to live through in, in, because of this mad witch hunt. You, let me go ahead and just apologize for the stuttering that's going on. I am up late with this one tonight. Uh, there's so much that I want to tell y'all. There's 
but there's only so much time. So, you know, go check out some documentaries. I know you come here for all the information and I know I preach that highly. Uh, but if I was to talk about every little thing within the documentaries and the books and the websites dedicated to this case, we'd be here till Christmas. I'm not joking you. <laughs> so, I mean, I do encourage you if you're fat, you know, just overly infatuated with this case, go check out those three documentaries. Excellent work. Excellent work. Best documentaries I think I've ever seen in a true crime case. Back to the case. And Miss Vicki Hutchinson. She knew that police were looking at Damien Eccles. And I'm not sure how she figured that out. But she did. And she knew she had a way to get through him. From her neighbor. Jesse Miss Kelly. So she gets with Jesse. And she asks him about a kid named Damien. Jesse's like, yeah, I know who you're talking about. And Vicky asked Damien, asked, you know, is Damien into witchcraft? And Jesse told her, I don't really know. I just knowed he was a weird person. That's a direct quote. Don't, you know, don't grammar not see me. Vicky was asked, Vicky asked Jesse if he knew Jason Baldwin. And Jesse told her he did. You know, I've known Jason since the sixth grade. He's a nice person. Me and him, we've always gotten along. Vicky told Jesse, that she wanted to go out with Damien. Vicky is 32 years old. Damien was 18. So Jesse doesn't see that that's a problem. And it's really not. I guess age is just a number. But it would be weird to hear that, you know, a 32-year-old woman was seeking an 18-year-old who had dropped out of high school. And very obviously becoming the front runner in the suspect list of this murder case. However, Jesse doesn't see that. That's too, too many connections that have to be made and his brain doesn't function that way. So what did he do? He promised to introduce her to Damien. At this point, not only was Bray included into what Vicky was finding out, but so was Jerry Driver. And both men were encouraging her to keep going. Driver suggests that Vicky go to the local library and pick up some books regarding the occult, even providing her with a list of books that were at this library for her to go check out. And he was like, just have them laying around when Damien comes over. But she didn't even have a fucking library card. So what Driver do? He let her borrow his. As a librarian, that drives me crazy. If you don't have a library card, go get one now. The next time that Damien and Jesse were with in Vicky's neighborhood, Jesse stuck to what he had promised and brought Damien to her house. And then he just leaves Damien there. Vicky tells Bray and later West Memphis PD that, quote, a relationship had developed between her and Damien after that meeting and that it was the start of an eight-day romance, one that she said was entirely calculated on her part and passionate on Damien's, but sexless from the beginning to end. She said the relationship had been strictly part of her private detective work, end quote. So our civilian detective is out doing the job that our detectives should be doing. She also said, quote, he's not real, real talkative. You kind of have to pull things out of him, but he kept telling me about the boy's murder and how he had been 
He never said question. He always said that I was accused for eight hours. I was accused of killing those three little boys. And I said, you know why would they pick you in West Memphis? Why would they just pick you out? And he just looked at me and, I mean, really, really weird and said, because I'm evil, end quote. Vicky told Damien that she was interested in learning more about his Satanism and Damien invited her to something called an SBAT, which is just a gathering of witches. So Bray said that at this point, you know, this is getting too dangerous. You shouldn't be doing this at all. And Vicky quit back. You know, she didn't care about the danger. All she wanted to do was help them catch the killer. So on May 19th of 1993, Vicky says that she was picked up in a red Ford Escort, Damien driving, Jesse in the back seat, and he took her to a field north of Marion, down a dirt road, where she could hear running water in the distance. They climbed out of the car once they got to the spot, and there were 10 people there, their faces and arms painted black, taking their clothes off and touching each other. At this point, she said she had seen enough and told Damien to take her home. He took her home, leaving Jesse Miss Kelly behind for this Esbat orgy. She's unable to identify anybody who was at that at the gathering. No names, but she says she did hear the nicknames Lucifer, Spider, and Snake. Where were the question from investigators? When she was telling them of the things that she saw out in this field, where were these questions coming from the investigators? Like, I don't know, how were you able to see these actions going on? Um, how about the fact that nobody knows Damien to drive because he doesn't have a license and he doesn't have a car. And no one in his family owned a Ford Escort of any color. Jesse Miss Kelly said that there was no Esbat gathering and everyone knew Damien didn't drive when he had heard this story. So we've got some things not lining up here with our civilian detective. Just food for thought for a second. On May 27th, Gitchell, Ridge, and Allen drive out to Marion to hear what Vicki had to say, and they sat down with Vicki Hutchinson and Officer Bray, and she relays to them everything that she had already told to, had already told to Bray, and Bray told the visitors about a few interviews he had done with Vicki's son, Aaron. He says the boys visited Robin Hood Hills before with Aaron in tow. There's a clubhouse back in there and something, this is something that they had already heard from the children in West Memphis who had gone and, you know, explored through the woods. On some occasion, though, Aaron says they would spy on five men who liked to gather in the woods. These men would sit in a circle, chant, sing songs about the devils and do, quote, what men and ladies do. These allegations only fueled this fire that these poor eight-year-old boys were killed because of a rise of an occult in a small West Memphis community, and the leader of this occult is exactly who Driver said it was from the moment he heard these boys were found dead. Damien Eccles had finally killed someone in Jerry Driver's eyes. The next day, Vicki handed West Memphis PD an object 
that only reinforce the connection between her account and Aaron's. It's this cheap pewter earring cast. It's in the shape of a human skull, and it featured a snake slithering out of one of the eye sockets and coiling around the skull. It was supposedly an earring of Damien's, and he had dropped it at her house when he was over visiting. The thing about this earring is that Aaron says it looks exactly like the one worn by the man he had seen chanting in the woods. Ridge and Sudbury, they asked Vicky to hide a tape recorder in her room and invite Damien over and lure him into discussing the activities she had reported to them. Guess what? This tape disappeared. They say... Damien said the things that Vicky had told them, but his voice was not identifiable. So it didn't fit their investigation, basically. I don't believe for one moment that Damien corroborated what Vicky had been telling investigators, not one time. I don't believe this teenage boy was capable of just completely manipulating everyone in his, in his way. I know you're sitting there going, you know, yes, people are capable of doing that. And they are. But the more I dig into Damien Eccles, the more I see that he's nowhere close to what Jerry Driver thought he was. Now, on June 2nd, Vicki Hutchinson was asked to come in and take a polygraph on the information that she had been given to investigators. Durham from the West Memphis PD, the polygraph expert, he, he tests her about the information and it comes back and he says, you know, she's telling the, the truth. From this moment on, Gitchell is after Damien Eccles. He just needs a little bit more to make his case. The morning of the discovery of the boys, Jesse and a co-worker were headed to, to Memphis on I-40 and they had heard on the radio about these boys missing. After doing the roofing job they had landed, they were headed back to Marion, and at this point, he had heard the little boy's bodies had been found. Jesse had no idea of the information that Vicki had been telling Bray and West Memphis PD about him setting her up with Damien, putting his name on the list of suspects for this crime. The night of June 2nd, Jessie stayed on the couch of Vicky's house because she was concerned about reports of a prowler in the neighborhood. According to both, she he was on the couch and he had a, and he had a gun nearby. Big Jessie banged on the door the next morning telling little Jessie that Detective Sergeant Allen wanted to talk to him. He didn't know that by the end of the day, his life would be taking a whole new direction. He said he was going to the police department. I don't know what was going on, but I wasn't scared. At the time, I didn't know what he wanted to talk to me about. This is what Jesse had to say in regards to his impromptu questioning with Alan. Jesse was informed once he got down to the police station that he really couldn't answer any questions until his dad signed this, these papers. So Jesse and Alan went to where Big Jesse was, and along the way, Alan just happens to tell Jesse Miss Kelly about the $35,000 reward to whoever could give information leading to the rest of whoever committed this crime. To Jesse, this is a lot of money. And Alan said if he would help him out, he would get the money. 
So when he gets to his dad, Big Jesse tells him, you know, tell him what you know. That's all you have to do. They give us the money and Big Jesse could go and buy himself a new truck. And any son would love to be able to hand their father enough money to buy themselves their dream vehicle, right? So Jesse gets back to the station and he tells them what they knew, what he knew. He tells them about the kids he's seen on the side of the service road and what his friend had told him. At this point, Jesse Miss Kelly is given a polygraph test. And after which, he will give one of the most awful confessions ever to be heard. I want to stop here and give a warning. The audio you will hear next is from the actual confession of Jesse Floyd Miss Kelly Jr. It was recorded in 1993. There is obvious interference and noise pickup from the room. Limited editing was done so to preserve the audio from Detective Ridge, Inspector Gitchell, and Jesse Miss Kelly. I recommend you turn down your volume on the device you are listening on as the background noise is quite loud. Pay close attention to the questions and lead-ins of the West Memphis Police Department investigators. Recall what was discussed in the first episode regarding the murders and try to match up the confession to the facts we know about the crime. This is Detective Brian Ridge of the West Memphis Police Department, currently in the West Memphis Police Department, conducting an investigation for the offense of triple homicide, case file number 9305-0666. Currently in the office with Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly Jr., birth date 17 of 75, education as a ninth grade. The place we are in the detective division, today's date is 6-3 of 93. The time now is 2.44 p.m. Present in the interview will be Inspector Gary Gitchell and Jesse and Ms. Kelly. Jesse, in front of me I have a rights form. Uh, it's got your signature at the bottom of it. Is that correct? Your, your signature? Yes, sir. Okay. We're informing you that we are Detective Sergeant Mike Allen and Detective Brian Ridge. Now, Detective Sergeant Mike Allen is the one that read this form to you earlier. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And I was here when he read it to you. Yes, sir. All right. Police officers of the West Memphis Police Department. We're conducting an investigation for the offense of capital felony murder, which was committed on or about 5-5 of 93. Before we ask you any questions, you must know and understand your legal rights. Therefore, we warn and advise you that you have the right to remain silent. Do you understand that? Yes. And those are your initials on the line in front of that statement? Yes, it is. Okay. Anything you say can be used against you in court. Do you understand that? Yes, I do. And those are your initials? Yes, it is. And you have the right to talk to a lawyer for advice before we ask you any questions and to have him with you during questioning. Do you understand that? Yes, I do. And those are your initials? Yes, it is. If you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you before any questioning if you wish at no cost to you. Do you understand that? Yes, I do. And those are your initials? Yes, it is. If you decide to answer questions now without a lawyer present, you will still have the right to stop answering at any time. you understand that? Yes, I do. Those are your initials? Yes, it is. You're up here of your own free will. You right. came up here to answer some questions, and basically we found out some information during those questions. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Okay. At the bottom of this form is a waiver of rights. It says, I have read the statement of my rights, and I understand what my rights are. I am willing to make a statement and answer questions. I do not want a lawyer at this time. I understand and know what I am doing. No promises or threats have been made to me, and no pressure or force has been used against me. 
Is all that correct? Yes, it is. Okay. And you signed the bottom of the form? Yes, I did. Okay. It's witnessed by Michael Wayne Allen and myself, Detective Brian Ridge. Okay. Jesse, let's, let's go straight to that date, 5-5 of 93, okay. Wednesday, early in the morning. You received a phone call, is that correct? Yes, I did. And who made that phone call? Jason Baldwin. All right. What occurred? What did he talk about? He told me and asked me could I go uh, go to West Memphis with him, and I told him no. I had to work and stuff, and then he told me he had to go to West Memphis, so him and Damien went, and then I went with him. All right. When? Wednesday. All right. When did you go with him? <laughs> that morning. At nine o'clock in the morning? Yes, it is. Okay. I went with them, and then I... Uh, now, were you in a car? Whose car were y'all in? We walked. Y'all walked? Okay. Right. We walked, and then... Uh, where did you go? We went to Robin Hood. You went to the Robin Hood. Explain to me where those woods are. About, uh, Blue Bacon, truck wash. Just a little patch of woods. A little patch of woods. Behind Blue Bacon? Behind it. Right back there behind it. Okay. What occurred while you were there? When I was there, I saw Damien hit this one, hit this one boy real bad. And then, uh, then he started screwing him and stuff. And then, uh... All right, you've got in front of you a picture that was taken out of the newspaper, I believe. It's got three boys. And these are the three boys that were killed on that date in Robin Hood Woods. Okay. Which one of those three boys is it you say Damien hit? The third picture, which will be... Michael Moore. This boy right here? Yeah. All right, that's uh, the buyer's boy. Christopher. That's who you're pointing at? Mm -hmm. If you'll read the caption... The grizzly slaying from left, eight-year-old Michael Moore, Stephen Branch, and Christopher Byers. Okay. So you saw Damien strike Chris Byers in the head. What did he hit him with? He hit him with his fist and bruised him all up real bad. And then uh, Jason turned around and hit Steve Branch. Okay. They started doing the same thing. Then the other one took off. Michael uh, Moore took off running. So I chased him and grabbed him and held him. To, they got there, and then I left. Okay. All right. When you get the boys back together, where are you at from the creek? I was up by the uh, service road. Up by the service road? Okay. Now, when this... When he hits the first boy, where are they at when he when he hits him? Are you in the woods? You on the side of the big bow? You out in the field? Where are you? I was at? in the woods. In the woods. Okay, you've been down there in those woods before. Sorry. Can you describe to me what in those woods? What's the location where you were? Uh, Is there a path you go down? I was down a little path. All right, where does that path go to? It lead out there close to the uh, field, close to the interstate. Okay. Stuff where I was at. All right. I was close by the interstate. When he hits the first boy, and then Jason hits another boy, and one takes off running, no, where does he run to? 
that one he runs out going out the out the park and I chased him and grabbed him and brought him back. Which way does he go? I mean, does he going back towards where he, the houses he, are? Is he going to Blue Beacon? Is he going out towards the field? Where's he running to? Towards the houses. Towards the houses. Where the pipe is that goes across the water? Yeah. Okay. He ran out there and I, and I called him and brought him back. And then I took off. Okay. Well, you came back a little bit later, and all three boys are tied. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then I took off and went home. All right. Have they got their clothes on when you saw them tied? They had them off. They had already gotten them off. When he first hit the boy, when Damien first hit the first boy, did they have their clothes on then? Mm-hmm. All right. When did they take their clothes off? Right after they beat up all three of them and beat them up real bad. Beat them up real bad. And then they took their clothes off. Mm-hmm. And then they, then they tied them. Then they tied them up, tied their hands up. They start screwing them and stuff, cutting them and stuff. And I saw it and I turned around and looked. And then I took off running. I went home. And then they called me and asked me how come I didn't stay. I told them I just couldn't. Just couldn't stay for that? I couldn't stand to see what they was doing to them. Okay. Now, when it's going on, when it's taking place, you under you saw somebody with a knife. Who had a knife? Jason. Jason had a knife. What did he cut with a knife? What did you see him cut, or who did you see him cut? I saw him cut one of the little boys. All right, where did he cut him at? He was cutting him in the face. Cutting him in the face. All right. Another boy was cut, I understand. Where was he cut at? At the bottom. On his bottom? Was he face down and he was cutting on him, or? He was. Are you talking about bottom? Do you mean right here? Mm -hmm. In his groin area? Okay. Do you know what his penis is? Yeah. That's where he was cut at. That's where he was cut. Which boy was that? You're talking about the buyer's boy again? Okay. Are you sure that he was the one that was cut? That's when I seen him cutting on. Okay. Do you know what a penis is? Yes. All right. Is that where he was cutting? That's where I seen him going down at. And he was on his back. I seen him going down like a real close to his penis and stuff. And I saw some blood and that's when I took off. Was, uh, were y'all close to the creek at that point? Yes, where, where was the little boy actually at? He was close. About. All right, you know where the bio is? Right. All right, and you know where the little creek is that goes out to the expressway? And it doesn't have a lot of water in it, but it's got some water in it, and it's flowing through there. Which side of that creek were you on? Were you on the Memphis side of the creek, or were you on the Blue Beacon side of that creek? Blue Beacon. On the Blue Beacon. Mm-hmm. So there's like a tall bank. Were you? Where were you at on that bank? I was up at stand up at on top. All right, where were they at? They was at the bottom. On the, which side? The Memphis side. They were on the Memphis side. I was on the. All right, we're going to correct that even further. That's the east side. Memphis side is the east side, and you were standing at the top of the bank on the west side. Were you looking down at what was going on? I was looking down. After I seen all that, I took off. Okay, and. When you left, did you hear any more hollering or anything? No. All right. 
you went home. And about what time was it that all this was taking place? They called me about... I'm not saying when they called you. I'm saying what time was it that you were actually there in the park? I was there about 12. About noon? Okay. Was it after school? I let out? I didn't go to school. What these other no, boys? No. They, they skipped school. They skipped they school. Going to catch their bus or stuff, and they was on their bikes. So, all right, they were on their bikes. Where were their bikes at? They they laid their bikes down when they came out there to the when they when they hollered for them, told them come out there. Where, where did they lay their bikes down? That's what I'm asking. I don't know where they laid their bikes at down there. Because I was, I was behind Damien Neal, way, way behind them. Okay. And when they hollered, then I seen them boys. Little boys came on over. Mm -hmm. Had Damien seen these boys before? Yes. Has he done things with them before? Or has he just been watching them? He's has he had sex with he's them been before? Them. Has he ever had sex with any of them before? No, he's been watching them. He's been watching them. You mentioned earlier that at one of the meetings you went to with this cult thing, they had some pictures. Describe those pictures for me. They had, had some houses, the trees and stuff. Okay. Had somebody taken pictures of these boys? Mm -hmm. Were they in the houses or were they in these trees when they took those pictures? They were at the houses. At the houses. Did they take, like, one picture of one boy? It was in a group. Always three? It was a group of pictures of three. All okay. three of them. All three of them would generally be together. Mm -hmm. How many pictures did you see all together? I just saw one. Okay. And it had these same three boys in it? Mm-hmm. You're certain of that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, did you say the boys skipped school that day? These little boys did? Mm-hmm. Are you sure? They was going to catch them, going somewhere, and like I said, David, Damien and them left before I did. I told them I'd meet them there and stuff. I had to get ready and stuff. I'd meet them there. And it was early in the morning, so they wouldn't have met, met me up. They wouldn't have went up there, and then I came up, you know, later on what, behind them. What time did you get there? I got there about nine. In the morning? Mm -hmm. A Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and when's, what time is it right now? Right now? Yeah. You don't know what time it is? Do you not wear a watch? Set home. My so, dad, my dad woke me up this morning. Your time period might not be exactly right, what you're saying. Right. But it, it was like early in the day, but you don't know exactly what time. Okay. Because we got, I've got some real confusion with the times you're telling me. But now, this nine o'clock in the evening call that you've got, explain that to me. Well, after all the stuff happened that night that they'd done it, okay, I went home about noon. Then they called me okay. nine o'clock at that night. They called me. Okay. And what did they tell you on the telephone? They asked me how come I left so early and stuff. And I told them I couldn't stand there watching it no more, so I had to do something to get out of there. Okay. 
Who called you? Jason. And you mentioned you heard some voice in the background? I heard some David. And what else? I think you said that he made the call from his house? He made a call from his house, and Damien was hollering in the background and said, We done it, we done it. What are we going to do if somebody saw us? What are we going to do? Okay. Now, the knives, was there one knife, two knives? Was your knife there? Mm-hmm. Did somebody take you and use your knife? Do you have a knife? I got one knife. Where is it at? It's at home. Okay. The knife that you said Jason was using, mm-hmm. where is it? I don't, I don't know what he done with it because after I left, then that's when I don't know what they done with it. After I left, I don't know what they done with it. You didn't tell it you he hit it somewhere? I, I got a feeling here. You're not quite telling me everything. Now, we're, you know we are recording everything. So this is very, very important to tell us the entire truth. If you were there the whole time, then tell us you were there the whole time. Don't leave anything out. This is very, very important. Now just tell us the truth. I was there until they tied them up. And then that's when I left. After they tied them up, I left. But you saw them cutting on the boys. I saw them cutting on them. And then they so laid, what, what else left is there after they laid, that? They laid the knife down beside them, and I saw them tying them up, and then that's when I left. Were the boys conscious, or were they... They was unconscious, too. Unconscious. Okay. And then after I left, they done more. They done more? They started screwing them again. Okay. How were they screwing them when you saw them? They were... Jason stuck his in one of them's mouth. And Damien was screaming one of them up the ass and stuff. Okay. Alright, and the one that they were cutting the penis off of, did any of them are cutting the penis or whatever was being done, did they have sex with him at all? No. Did either one of them? J- uh, Jason did. Jason did. Jason was screwing him while Damien stuck his in his mouth and that the boys around. Okay. How did he have sex with that one? Damien, he was holding him down, like. Uh-huh. And Jason had his legs up in the air and that little boy was kicking, saying, don't, don't, like that. Okay. He had his legs up in the air. All right. What was to keep these little boys from running off? If just their hands are tied, what's to keep them from running off? They beat them up so bad, well, they can't hardly move. They haven't tied, had their hands tied down. Right, and just you, sit on them. You said they had their hands tied up, tied down. Were their hands tied in a fashion to where they couldn't have run? You tell me. They, they could run, they just had them tied. When they knock them down, and stuff, they can hold their arms and stuff and, and sit, hold them down like when he couldn't raise up and the other one pick his legs up. Okay. So they had them under control. You were there the whole time that was taking place? That was there. Okay. One of them was cut on the face real bad. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. And one of them was being cut on his penis. Yes, sir. Did you ever use, did anyone use a stick and hit the boys with? 
that man had kind of a big old stick when he hit that first one after he hit him with his fist, knocked him down, and then he got him a big old stick and hit him. What did the stick look like? I mean, was it like a a, a, a big log like that, or is it, or is it a stick? It, I'll say it was about that, about that big round. I'll say about that long. Okay. About the size of a baseball bat, maybe just a little bit bigger around. Yeah. That's what you described with your hands, right? Right. Okay. How long was the knife that Jason was using? All right, you're describing a knife that would be about six inches long. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And what kind of blade did it have on it? Uh, like a regular regular knife blade. Was it a knife that you fold up or was it a like a hunting knife it that's just one piece? Just you fold up knife. It was a folding knife? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, does Damien have a knife? No. He doesn't have one? He didn't have one that night? He didn't have one that night. Did he borrow yours? No, he borrowed mine. Okay. Did they have a briefcase with them? Didn't, you didn't see a briefcase? I didn't see a briefcase. Not unless they left it there that, that day before it happened. Not unless they left it there then, but I didn't see it down there that day. Have you ever seen them with a briefcase before? I seen them once that one night. I seen them with them that night. Okay. What What is kept inside that briefcase? They had some cocaine and a little gun. Is that where you first saw the pictures mm -hmm. of the boys? I didn't like so. And you saw the pictures in the briefcase? Mm -hmm. I first, when we had that cult. Okay. Now, you have participated in this cult, right? Yes. How long have you been involved in it? been in about three months. Okay. What is, tell me some of the things y'all do typically in the woods in, as being in this cult. We go out kill dogs and stuff and then kill girls out there. Alright, what do you do with the girls when you're out there? We screw them and stuff. Does just everybody take turns? Everybody and all has the origins and stuff like that. Okay. When you kill a dog, what do you do with it? We, we usually skin it, build a little bonfire and eat it and stuff. Okay, when you're initiating somebody new to come into it, come into a cult. What actually is done to initiate that person into the cult? We usually, we usually, you know, kill the animals, you know, see if he knows, you know, how to handle the meat and stuff. After we kill him, see if he knows, if he can't handle it, then he don't get in. Okay, so he kills an animal. You mentioned earlier that he may have to eat part of that animal. What part of the animal would he eat? Part of this, uh, meat off his leg. Meat off his leg. And if he, if he can't eat it, then he don't, he don't get in. Doesn't get into the club. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, on these, these meetings, have they ever been violent? Anybody got mad and got in a fight? No. Okay. The night you were in these woods, um, had y'all been in the water? Yeah, we've been in the water. We was in the, playing around in it. 
You were playing around in the water. All right. What were you doing in the water? Besides just playing, I mean, did the little boys, had they been in the water? Did they get in the water with y'all? No, they didn't get in the water with us. Okay. What were you doing in the water? We were just sitting there throwing stuff at each other. Okay. Were y'all having sex? No, I wasn't. You weren't? No. Was Damien and Jason having sex? They, they took turns going up under the water. Going under the water. What were they doing under the water? I don't know. They, they sit so far away. They, they go up in the water stay for about, I say about five, ten seconds, and then come up. The other one go down. Okay. So they were just messing around in the water. All right. They called for these boys to come over there. Yeah. They, they seen the boys and then they hollered. They been hollering. Say hey, and the boys came out there. Do they call them by name? Uh-uh, they just hollered and then they just showed up. Where did the boys put their bikes? Close right where they're right there before you come in. They laid it down right there. And I don't know what, after I left, I don't know what they did with the bikes. to the bikes at all? No. Are you sure? Positive. You didn't touch the bikes? I didn't touch them. You've been back to this place since that murder, mm -hmm. since it took time to place. What did you do while you were there? I'll be truthful. I'll sit down there. I just sit there after what they did to the boys. I just sit there and did what? Just thought what they would happen to them real bad. I just thought. Okay. And then I left and stuff. And stuff. I just left and walked, walked on. When did you go back there? Uh, two or three days after it happened. Were you there by yourself? Did you go there with some more boys once? Just me, David, and Dennis. That particular place? No, not today. Are you willing to go down there with us and us have a camcorder and you show us where these things took place? Could you do that? Wouldn't have any problem with that. But you would be able to point out where these things took place, mm -hmm. which way the boys came from, mm -hmm. and where y'all were when he hollered for the boys and stuff like that. You wouldn't have any problem with that? Because after, after, after the murder and stuff, about, like I said, about two or three days later after it happened, I went and I thought about it, and I haven't been there ever since. Okay. Let me ask you something that's real serious, and I want you to be real truthful. And I, I want, want you to think about it before you answer it. Don't just say yes or no real quick. I want you to think about it. Did you actually hit any of these boys? No. Now tell us the truth. No. Okay. Did you actually rape any of these boys? No. Did you actually kill any of these boys? No. Did you see any of the boys actually killed? 
Yes. Okay. Which one did you see killed? That right there. If you're pulling to the buyer's boy again. Mm-hmm. Okay. How was he actually killed? He was choking real bad, like. Choking him? Okay. What was he choking him with? His hands. His, like a, little, like a stick. There's a little stick and kind of holding it over his neck. Okay, so he was choking him to the point to where he actually went unconscious? So at that point, you feel like he was dead? Yeah. Okay. Did any of the other two boys, were you there when they were actually killed? You say you got sick of what you were saying. Did you throw up or anything? Mm-hmm. Where did you throw up at? I got a little bit of ways after we took saying that I left about half a mile up the road was when I threw up stuff. I couldn't hardly run or nothing. I just threw up. When you left from where, did you leave running? Mm-hmm. Were you hiding? You had some blood on your clothes? I had no blood on me. I, I didn't get clothes to them. Were your clothes wet still? Mm-hmm. They, was, they was damp. Muddy? Mm-hmm. All right, Inspector Gitchell touched on a point real, real close. Now, what clothes was Jason wearing that day? That he, night, he, he wears some blue jeans and some, some boots, like the army boots, like army boots. And what kind of a shirt? I mean, you know, everybody wears a special shirt for different things. He's wearing a, a Megadeth shirt. A Megadeth? No, Megadeth Metallica. Metallica shirt. All right. Was he wearing a cap? Anything like that? No, he didn't wear a cap. All right, Damien. What was Damien wearing? Damien had some black pants on, some boots, and a black t-shirt. All right, was there anything on his shirt? No, no kind of design or anything? Just, just These blue jeans that Jason was wearing, they designer jeans? Were they old jeans, wore out, holes? They were wore out. What did it look like? I had holes in the knees and stuff. Holes in the knees. What color is Jason's hair? Blonde. Bright blonde or like a sandy reddish type blonde? You know the difference? It's like a sandy color blonde. Sandy color blonde? Okay. He's wearing blue jeans. He had a Metallica shirt. This is a shirt that's got Metallica across the front of it spelled out and a man's name or something under it or a picture. Is that right? You tell me. They had pictures. Picture of somebody? Different shirts have, you know, different Metallica shirts got different pictures. Which one did he have? He had, uh, like a, the sky skull on it stuff like A skull? Okay. What were you wearing that day? I was just wearing regular blue jeans, my shoes, and... What kind of shoes were you wearing? My, uh... Adidas. Adidas tennis shoes? Mm-hmm. Okay. What kind of shirt were you wearing? I was just wearing a regular one of my old greasy t-shirts. Okay. Was it a design shirt, like this bull run type shirt, or was it just a plain white, plain white. old t-shirt? Right. Where are these shoes at now? A friend of mine, yeah, he bought them. 
All right. Who is that? Buddy Lucas. Buddy Lucas. He borrowed them from it. The boots that Damien had on, are they army type boots too, or what kind of boots were they? Close, like army type, not, not quite. Okay. They're black. Is that right? Lace up? Okay. And Jason's black, lace up? Jason's black up to about three quarters black. Oh, they come way up on him. Okay. Damien's didn't come up that far. Okay. Okay. And they killed the boys you decided to kill. You went home. How long after you got home before you received the phone call? 30 minutes? An hour? Um, an hour after you got home? Okay. So they were there for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. When he called you on the phone, did he say he just got in? He, 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 he called me when he first got home, he called me. He said, how come I, how come I left? How come I, I couldn't stand? I had to do something else. Okay. And then you, they, just, you couldn't stand it. And then Damien, I heard Damien in the background saying, we done it, we done it. What we going to do now? So what about if somebody saw us? Okay. Did anybody see you leaving? No. That you know of? That I know of. Did anybody see Damien and Jason? Oh no, I left before them. But have you heard anybody say that they saw Damien and Jason? Uh-huh. You hadn't heard anybody. Okay. Are these initiations? You said they eat part of the leg muscles, leg meat. Would that involve eating part of the penis of the animal? Just the meat. Just the meat. Okay. Has Jason and Damien talked to you since this happened? They haven't talked to you about this? They ain't say nothing around me, because I'm around some more of my friends, they don't say nothing. Well, when you've been by yourself, and I'm sure in the last three weeks you've been by yourself with them sometime. I mean, with Damien, he, he, he just, uh, he keeps on asking me how come I left and stuff, and has anybody said anything to me about it. Okay. What did he say about when you came to the police department? That boy, you seeing that boy in the woods up there behind the Goodyear place. What did he say about that? He didn't know nothing about that. He didn't know that? Uh-uh. Okay. What about when you get with Jason by himself? He just he keeps on asking me what we're going to do next. I told him I can't do nothing now because I go with my dad every day. I make the best excuse because... So they're scared. Is that right? That's good because after what they did, I told them, I just bring the favorite excuse. I got to work with my dad every time or something. I do something. Well, what do you think ought to be done to them for killing these boys? I think they need to be put away for a while. Put away for a while. Do you think they're sick or just mean? I think they're sick. They're sick. Is there anything else you want to add to this statement? No. 
Why did you not come forward with this information? Because I was scared. Scared of Damien or scared of the police? Scared of the police. Are you scared of Damien now? No. Are you scared of the police now? No. You're not? So we've treated you well. Okay. All right. I'm going to conclude this interview. The time is 3.18. A confession that was molded and shaped as investigators guided the words of a young 17-year-old teen that would lead to the arrest of Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly on June 3, 1993. These three faces would be plastered as the cover photo for this case. Could three teens who rocked out to Metallica, wore black, and followed a religion that wasn't the conventional norm really kidnap three boys, take them into the woods parents feared, and torture them all for the sake of sacrificing them to further confirm to their gods their commitment? In the 90s, police saw a rise, a new trend amongst the communities. Teens were exploring their persons, looking for a place to belong, one that they would feel safe in to be themselves. To police, they were up to no good, using Satanism as a way to condone the sex and drugs they were doing. If they could say that their God wanted them to have as much sex as possible and use illicit drugs to connect on a higher level, then surely they were capable of taking the life of another. Salem Witch Trials of 1692 and 1693 taught the world nothing, because here we are, three centuries later, hunting down the modern-day witches for a crime that stumped investigators from the moment they put their hands on it. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we take the wild ride of this investigation into who killed Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. I wish I could say we are seeing the peak of this true crime case, but we're not, and it only goes up from here. Join me next week as we tackle the trials of these three teenage boys. It's an ending no one saw coming. As always, I leave you with one last line, one from a listener that fits this case appropriately. You cannot have equality if you demand inclusivity. Much love, the true crime librarian.